As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive at the bedside and in nursing school. I'm so, so glad that you are here, and today we're going to be talking about gestational diabetes. Now, before we jump into that topic, I want to start us off with three stat facts. Three stat facts. Are you ready? First, Approximately 60% of individuals with a past history of gestational diabetes later develop type 2 diabetes. Number two, the overall rate of gestational diabetes in 2020 was 7.8 per 100 births, so quite a lot. And that's an increase of 30% from 2016. That's a huge jump in a very short amount of time. And interestingly, the risk for gestational diabetes increases when the individual is pregnant with multiples. And stat fact number three, gestational diabetes can cause macrosomia, which is a large infant. And the largest infant ever born was just over 22 pounds. This occurred in Italy in 1955. Now that your interest is peaked and you're just dying to learn more about gestational diabetes, let's dive in. So gestational diabetes is a complication of pregnancy in which individuals with no history of diabetes have persistently elevated blood glucose levels. Now, of course, just like with many things that we talk about here on the podcast, the cause is not fully understood. Shocker, right? But what we do know is that hormone changes and dysfunction of pancreatic beta cells lead to an inability to regulate blood glucose levels during pregnancy. So during a normal pregnancy, the mother's body adapts across all body systems to accommodate the developing fetus. A key adaptation relates to insulin sensitivity and blood glucose levels. In the beginning stages of pregnancy, the mother becomes more sensitive to insulin and excess glucose is stored as fat for later use as pregnancy progresses. As gestation continues, placental hormones lead to insulin resistance and this causes glucose levels to increase. This extra glucose is transferred to the fetus to support its development, and the mother's pancreatic beta cells either grow or shrink in response to changes in glucose levels. After the infant is born, the metabolic changes typically resolve within a few days. So that's what occurs in normal physiology and then in gestational diabetes, these hormone changes, there's dysfunction of pancreatic beta cells, and we're not able to regulate blood glucose adequately. So who is most at risk for gestational diabetes? 
So it's really important to note that all pregnant individuals have some level of insulin resistance during the later stages of pregnancy. Women who have insulin resistance prior to becoming pregnant start their pregnancies requiring more insulin and are more likely to develop gestational diabetes. So that's a really big one right there. Someone with insulin resistance prior to becoming pregnant. Some specific additional risk factors include advanced maternal age, being pregnant with multiples, decreased physical activity, or being overweight, a history of gestational diabetes, prediabetes, hypertension, or PCOS, which is polycystic ovary syndrome. Other individuals at risk are those with a family history of diabetes, or if they've just had a prior delivery of an infant weighing more than nine pounds, which is approximately 4.1 kilograms. And then certain ethnicities are also at higher risk for developing gestational diabetes. This includes Black individuals, Hispanic, American Indian, and Asian American. So why do we care so much about gestational diabetes? What are the complications of this condition? So complications related to gestational diabetes can affect both the mother and the infant. Maternal complications include higher risk for hypertension and preeclampsia, which can be very serious, as well as an increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes or having gestational diabetes with future pregnancies. If a vaginal birth is attempted, other complications include prolonged labor, tears to the perineum, uterine rupture, and postpartum hemorrhage. And then fetal complications for unmanaged gestational diabetes include one, macrosomia. I mentioned earlier about the largest infant ever recorded. So macrosomia is when an infant is significantly larger than average. An infant weighing more than about nine pounds is considered macrosomic. You may see some variation in this depending on which resource you are utilizing. And for reference, Average infants are around seven pounds, so this would be about a two pound or more difference. And the reason this occurs is because elevated glucose levels cause the developing fetus to essentially be overfed. And as a result, they grow too large. Macrosomia increases the rate of a difficult or traumatic birth, the need for emergent cesarean section, the need for planned cesarean section, and birth injuries such as shoulder dystocia, bone fractures, nerve palsy, cerebral palsy, and even infant death. Another fetal complication is preterm birth, and this may be a spontaneous preterm birth or a planned preterm birth due to the large size of the fetus. And this comes with many complications of its own, including, very commonly, breathing problems and feeding difficulties. Hypoglycemia can occur after the infant is born. So in unmanaged gestational diabetes, the neonate system responds by secreting more insulin. Once born, that excess glucose source is no longer present and the infant becomes hypoglycemic. The infant could also have long-term complications, including a higher risk for obesity and type 2 diabetes and increased risk for death, either being stillborn or death within months of birth. 
So now that you have some understanding and background information on gestational diabetes, let's dive into the nursing implications, and we'll do that using the straight A nursing latte method. But first, a quick break. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. So the first letter in the latte method is an L and this stands for look. Basically, how does the patient look? What are their signs and symptoms? So gestational diabetes can often not have any presenting signs and symptoms and is only discovered through routine lab testing and screening. When symptoms are present, they can include those three hallmark signs of diabetes, polyphagia, polydipsia, and polyuria. When blood glucose levels are persistently elevated, the patient may also complain of fatigue, blurred vision, nausea, vomiting, and weight loss despite an increase in appetite. Additionally, the individual may also have more frequent infections, especially bladder or vaginal infections. And then as for the infant, an infant born to a mother with unmanaged gestational diabetes may show outward signs such as a larger than normal size, hypoglycemia, preterm birth and any associated difficulties with things like breathing or feeding. They may be jaundiced and they could have a birth injury due to cephalopelvic distortion, again, because they're larger than normal sized babies. The next letter in the latte method is an A, and this stands for assessment. So what are the key assessments for gestational diabetes? Mainly, these are going to be monitoring for signs of hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia. Hypoglycemia is a risk for anyone taking glucose-lowering medications and often manifests as shakiness, irritability or confusion, sweating, kind of cool, clammy skin, palpitations, headache, dizziness, and hunger. When severe, hypoglycemia can cause a decreased level of consciousness. Common signs of hyperglycemia include increased urination, increased thirst, increased hunger. Other signs include blurred vision, nausea, and vomiting. If the hyperglycemia progresses to diabetic ketoacidosis, the hallmark signs are fruity smelling breath, small respirations, which are those rapid, deep respirations, and altered or decreased level of consciousness. The next letter in the latte method is a T, and this one stands for tests. So what tests are conducted for a patient maybe at risk for or with gestational diabetes? So the first thing that's going to come up is screening. Screening for gestational diabetes is conducted on all pregnant individuals between their 24th and 28th week, though earlier screening may be warranted for anyone who is at higher risk. 
there are two types of tests for screening, the glucose challenge test and the glucose tolerance test. So the glucose challenge test is that first test that's done and it's conducted as a routine part of prenatal care. So this test involves the individual drinking a solution containing 50 grams of glucose and then having their blood drawn after one hour to see if it is abnormally elevated. If it is, then the patient is likely going to get a glucose tolerance test for further evaluation. So the glucose tolerance test involves the patient having to fast prior to the exam and a baseline blood glucose level is drawn. And then they drink a solution containing 75 grams of glucose. Blood is drawn after one hour and then again after two hours. A third sample may be taken at the three hour mark if needed. So the diagnostic criteria for gestational diabetes for someone going through a glucose tolerance test would be a blood glucose level 180 milligrams per deciliter or higher at that one hour mark. At that two hour mark, it would be if it were 153 milligrams per deciliter or higher. And then at the three hour mark, a blood glucose level of 140 milligrams per deciliter or higher these would all be indications for gestational diabetes. And then during pregnancy, the patient will have frequent prenatal visits as gestational diabetes does place them into that higher risk category. We need to keep a very close eye on these patients. At these visits, the patient will have their blood glucose uh, evaluated either with a lab draw at the doctor's office or reviewing the test results from home, keeping a record and bringing those in. The patient will have their blood pressure measured and dipstick urine protein assessed. Remember, gestational diabetes puts the individual at higher risk for preeclampsia. The baby's growth and development will also be carefully monitored via ultrasound and non-stress testing. So the non-stress test involves the patient wearing a monitor to assess fetal heart rate while at rest for a period of about 20 to 30 minutes potentially longer if there's any complications, like say the mother's bleeding, been in a trauma, or has experienced decreased fetal movement. And then during active labor or in patients with gestational diabetes who have an epidural, blood sugar levels are often tested hourly due to the risk for both hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia. Now let's move on to treatments, the next letter in the LATTE method. So the evidence shows that outcomes for both mom and baby are significantly improved when gestational diabetes is detected and treated in a timely manner. Treatments for gestational diabetes include diet, exercise, and medication when needed. So let's first look at diet. Diet is actually considered first-line therapy for women with gestational diabetes. A dietitian helps the patient develop an eating plan that accommodates things like food preferences, weight gain, weight loss, blood glucose levels, their lifestyle, all of those things because we really want them to stick with this eating plan. Studies show that about 75% of pregnant women with gestational diabetes can positively impact their blood glucose levels with diet and exercise, which is the next component. So looking at physical activity, 
the American Diabetes Association recommends pregnant individuals aim for at least 20 minutes of physical activity per day or 150 active minutes per week. And that can be a mix of aerobic and non-aerobic or strength training type exercise. And then that third component was medication when it's needed. So when medication is needed, the most commonly prescribed medication for gestational diabetes is insulin, since it does a really good job at controlling blood sugars and does not cross the placenta. And then our final letter in the latte method is an E for education. How do we educate our patients about gestational diabetes? So just like with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, gestational diabetes requires a lot of patient education around things like blood glucose monitoring, lifestyle modifications, and follow-up care. Note that not only is the goal to manage blood glucose during pregnancy, but to also decrease the individual's risk for developing type 2 diabetes after pregnancy. Again, remember, they're at higher risk for that. So first, there's blood glucose monitoring. We want to ensure the patient understands how and when to measure their blood glucose. Initially, most patients will be advised to check their blood sugar four times per day before breakfast and one to two hours after each meal. Remember, most of the time we're going to try to treat this with diet and exercise. If taking insulin, then blood sugar is measured prior to eating and again at bedtime, just like we do with anybody who has type 1 or type 2 diabetes. As for nutrition, we want to teach our patients the vital role that nutrition plays in managing gestational diabetes. If they do not have a personalized eating plan or meal plan designed by a dietitian, some general nutritional guidelines that are promoted by the American Diabetes Association are to choose foods high in fiber and low in fat and calories. So this would be a recommendation of half of the plate consisting of those non-starchy vegetables, one quarter of the plate dedicated to complex carbohydrates, and one quarter of the plate for protein foods. We also want to advise our patients to avoid sweetened foods, such as desserts and syrup and jam and sodas, things like that. If desired, alternative sweeteners such as stevia may be utilized. And then we also want to teach our patients to eat three small meals and three to four healthy snacks per day. So that was nutrition. Next is physical activity. We want to teach our patients that regular physical activity can improve glucose tolerance and reduce insulin levels. The American Diabetes Association recommends at least 20 minutes of activity a day, which can include a mix of aerobic and strength training activities. And then there's weight management. Prior to becoming pregnant, teach the patient about the importance of maintaining a healthy weight as a way to reduce the risk for gestational diabetes. And if already pregnant, active weight loss efforts are not advised. Instead, ensure the patient understands the benefits of a healthy diet and physical activity, as well as how much weight gain is recommended. For example, a woman of normal weight should gain between 25 and 35 pounds while a woman with a BMI greater than 30 should gain between 11 and 20 pounds. In the postpartum period, teach the patient that weight loss can reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes if the individual does have extra weight to lose. And then insulin. If your patient is taking insulin, which would be about 15% of individuals with gestational diabetes, we want to make sure they understand when and how and how much insulin to take. 
It's also important they understand how to recognize the signs of hypoglycemia and how to treat it. Typically, the treatment for hypoglycemia is to take in 15 grams carbohydrate, which would be about four ounces of juice, and then recheck their blood glucose in 15 minutes. So there you have it, your short, quick guide to gestational diabetes. Before I leave you, I want to take a quick minute for a listener shout out to Kristen, who wrote in to say this. Thank you for everything you do. I listen to your podcast to and from class, and I really enjoy your study sesh podcast. It has helped me in so many ways. I completed my first two semesters with all A's and level threes on my foundations, mental health, and med surge ATI tests. Thank you again for your kind words and everything you do. I can't wait to share with you that I have finished the program and landed my first nursing job. Kristen, that is amazing. I'm so proud of you. You're doing so well in school. And I love how excited you are about getting out there and embarking on this exciting profession. And I definitely want you to reach out and let me know when that happens. So if you're curious what Kristen is talking about, she's talking about Study Sesh and this podcast, obviously. Study Sesh is another podcast. It's a private podcast where I do different kinds of audio teaching and engaging formats like pod quizzes, lots of pod quizzes in study sesh where I ask a question, pause for a bit, give you time to answer, and then tell you the answer. So I always say it's like doing flashcards for your ears. It's a fabulous way to review and test your understanding. There's also drills, there's some power hour sessions, and a few case studies in there as well. Study sesh is super awesome. And if you want to be like Kristen, then you should definitely check it out. I'll put a link to that in the episode notes. So I really hope that you enjoyed this lesson on gestational diabetes and that you come back and join me next week where I'm going to be talking a bit about the difference between two very common types of cardiac events. So if you're interested in that, I will see you back here next week and make sure you follow the show so you never miss an episode. See you then. Landon pa this podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing, a proud member of the Airwave Media Network. For more educational podcasts, check out airwavemedia.com. And for more nursing-related content, go to straightanursingstudent.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.